Dame Lisa arrives amid great ceremony and is ushered in, and pronounces Kay's hair just lovely, of course. But my poor child, the ends. But my, how daring that cut! Just splendid on one so young. Thank goodness that you've no chest to speak of, or I should feel all outshone. And Kay, howling with inner hilarity. Avers that a woman of Dame Lisa's proportions need never be concerned that any one anywhere might ever be more feminine than she, and for good measure she goggles wretchedly at Dame Lisa's formidable cleavage. This display of abject beta femaleness results in Kay's immediate adoption as chief temporary protege of the Clutch. And she is eventually sent back to her airstream, reeking of three different perfumes, and with her hair arranged to give her a rakish yet classic frontierswoman look. She has, along the way, secured promises from every matron, maiden, and crone to come along and see the circus and bring as many male relatives as they can legitimately muster. Indeed, there is already competition among the younger girls as to who will bring more young men and thus impress the wild, romantic, respectable, comfortably flat-chested, soon-to-depart and monogamous gypsy. As a consequence of this absolute female enthusiasm and the accompanying opportunities for respectable yet steamy boy Rheingolder on girl Rheingolder action. The issues of permissions and debates and counsel become moot, and thus the circus comes to town. We have circled our wagons and made camp at a convenient yet non-intrusive distance from Rheingold, and it is morning on the day after our arrival. From out of the shady purple in one quarter of the sky comes a lonesome bus. Ancient and sputtering diesel, with metal showing where the paint has flaked away. It is something of the order of a twenty-six seater, and it is about as far from the smooth contours of Kay's airstream as you can get, and still have wheels. Saggy tires skid and squirm on the road, bulging perilously because there's hardly enough air in there to keep the rims off the asphalt. The engine pops and bangs, and little clouds of soot emerge, still burning, from an exhaust pipe which hangs pathetically between the rear wheels on a length of what appears to be stocking elastic. This wreck in waiting draws level with us, and almost everyone scurries back from it. The bus is painted Apache blue, rusted away around the edges, and it has been savaged and snapped. This is not so much a bus as a dying warrior, and in each starred, dusty window, a weird white face is pressed against the glass, white of skin and black of eye, contorted in a spooky sneer or a wild grin or an open howl. Munch's painting replicated over and over. The doors open, and the driver hops down from his seat. He waves and grins. Hi," says Ike Thermite. "I'm Ike Thermite, in case anyone has forgotten, and we are the Matterhuxy Mime Combine." He springs lightly to the ground, and behind him come the mimes, all popping joints and pins and needles from the journey. A moment later, he is whisked away by K and K and carried shoulder high around the buses. 
I am alone with the mimes. We look at one another. No one says anything. It's like sharing a lift to a funeral. After a moment, I wave it then, a bit hesitantly. One by one, they wave back in a perfect imitation. My uncertain wave starts with the nearest one, is picked up by the next before it can fade, and ripples away to the back. And then, just as the wave starts its return journey, there is an odd little commotion. The mime on the far side spots something on the horizon, shudders, and hides behind the next one in. The mime, being used for cover, looks sharply in both directions and dashes for Kay's bus. The revealed mime scurries behind the next in line, who also declines the honor and hurries away, leaving the little man crouched, bandy-legged. Peering around an obstacle which isn't there, he spins and dies behind mime number four, who stares in horror into the haze and remembers a pressing engagement elsewhere, and so too with the next, and the next. A few seconds later, the petrified mime is peering into my face, and we are the only two people around. Slowly, a single shaky finger extends, and then an arm. And the mime points back along the road. Huge round eyes, like a puppy's, make a silent appeal. Okay, already. Hide behind me. I look in the direction indicated by the pointing finger. There's a small dust cloud now, and at the business end of it, another vehicle, a covered military surplus truck, which has seen better days. With a couple of bullet holes painted on the side and some weird scratches and dings pretty much everywhere, the canvas section has been replaced with wood, panels reclaimed from some old-style restaurant or stately home, and a sort of caravan has been constructed. Daubed in foot-high letters along the side is "Magic of Andromus." The painter knew more about carpentry than pigment, because the pigment has dribbled. And the whole thing looks less like a gypsy wagon than a scary melted waxwork. I glance around at my concealed mime and find him gone. The magic of Andromus stops exactly parallel to Kay's airstream. The driver's door opens, and grey dust like graveyard sand trickles out onto the ground. A scuffed black patent leather shoe touches the ground. It makes no noise. Doctor Andromus gets out of the truck. He wears a top hat with a fine piece of gauze or mosquito net dangling lengthily to his neck. Beneath it, his face is white, with a tiny villainous mustache, and he wears a pair of aviator goggles over his eyes. His entire body is wrapped in a black cloak, which makes him look like a mummy or a sickly giant bat. For all that, he's not as tall as I am. It feels very odd, and somehow dangerous, to be looking down on him. Doctor Andromus, the doctor looks at me for a long moment, and then shrugs past on business of his own. You have to worry about someone even mimes find creepy. It is lunchtime, but the mimes are not eating. They are standing in a long regimented line, absolutely still. They are not rigid; they are relaxed and ready, but motionless. Corpse quiet, expressions painted on. They attend Ike Thermite's commandments.
Ike walks along the line, serious for the first time in my brief experience, and then he turns his back on them and spreads his arms like a bird. The Matahuxi mime combine follows suit slowly. Ike brings his arm around and opens an imaginary door. He steps forward into an imaginary world. He tucks a non-existent chair under an intangible table. He invites them in. The mimes cross the threshold one by one. Not one of them touches the door frame or puts a hand through a wall. There are too many of them to fit into the first room, and they get stuck, crowding around the entrance, jammed up together. Ike opens another door and goes farther into his imaginary space, brings the front half of the Matahuxi mime combine with him. The rest of the mimes fall into the first room, which is apparently a kitchen. They do the chores, they wash, they clean up, they step around one another, vault over non-physical furniture, they cook. In the next room, there's some heavy DIY going on. Mimes saw and chop, scrub the floor, clean the windows. They dodge flailing arms, lift bowls of soup in either hand, tightrope walk along the edge of sofas, squabble, fight, duck, and dive. Straight-backed and fluid, they do all these things in utter quiet, save for the occasional group sigh. Ike watches. This is the carter of the greatest mime in the world. I am hypnotized, sad, thrilled, and suddenly terribly homesick. I came here to talk to Ike Thermite, say hi, talk about old times, but suddenly I'm not sure that I want to. I'm very glad when Kay comes to give me a job. As I depart, the mimes are starting to practice their clown work. Mops, umbrellas, and plantain bananas are being passed out in solemn stillness. Five minutes later, I am swinging a sledgehammer to knock metal pins into the ground. These pins will hold up the main tent, so there are quite a few of them, and this task is vital and important. A lot of other people are doing the same thing, but these pins are given to me. It is a pleasantly percussive task. There is a method to the execution of the task, a technique. The hammer is wickedly heavy and hard to control. Only a strong man could lift it and hammer in a series of separate actions for longer than a few moments. Only an idiot strong man would actually do it, and there are surprisingly few of these. The process of building a body which can lift a vast amount in an unscientific way is most often also the process of learning that the other way is easier. The trick is in Newton's laws, of course. Move the hammer and let its momentum carry it up. Then divert it when it has the maximum kinetic energy but the minimum momentum and bounce it off the metal pin or stake in such a way that the reaction can be used to complement the initiation of another upward arc. Much the same principle applies to the single-edged sword form of Master Wu's voiceless dragon style. In any case, I have familiarized myself with the heft of the hammer, with its balance and bounce, and with its pitfalls. It becomes slippery in the heat. It does not always bounce true, and unlike a sword, it is heavily biased towards the business end. 
I have set up the pins in a long row, and now, prepared and quiet in my mind, I move along the line in a single unbroken motion. It begins with snake concealed. The weapon hangs behind the trailing leg so that it cannot easily be seen, and the enemy must either accept this or seek to alter his position accordingly. The pins unwisely take the first option, and moves on to stirring the cauldron. A twisting motion, which starts the weapon moving, preparing the first attack. I flip the hammer up, horse rears at the moon, and then I step forward, parting the hair, downward strike, followed by cloud hands, rolling motion, and back to stirring the cauldron. There is a little shuffle here, which Master Wu insisted was called walk like Elvis. But Elizabeth asserted, not without some justification, that this was unlikely to be the original name. Still, I walk like Elvis. After three or four spikes have gone in smoothly, I add cut across a thousand troops. A swirl where the weapon makes a full one hundred and eighty degree arc, positioning me between two pins and at ninety degrees to my starting vector, and follow it with wheels of the master's cart. Rolling the hammer on one side, then the other, before taking the last six in quick succession, babbling brook and parting the hair bound together in succession, and then turning monkey's dance, hammer still in motion, and driving them all another six inches into the hard ground. Thus returned to the beginning, I stop. My arms are not tired, but my heart is beating quickly, and my scabs are hurting. There are lines of pain aching through my chest, and little globes of heat inside the flesh where the bullets were. Still, job done, in perhaps three minutes. Kay told me it would take half an hour. Ha! See how my skills are transferable. As I turn to go in search of pies, I see a figure standing by the canteen tent. Ike Thermite is watching me. His eyes are round. Of course, his eyes are always round; they are painted on. Still, in all, somehow he is broadcasting considerable surprise, or so it seems. By the time I reach him, he is grinning. Tent pegs, he says. Yeah. Usually, says Ike Thermite in the tone of one imparting a secret. Usually, we put the ropes around the pins before we hammer them in. Bugger. But at least he does not want to talk about Matchingham or ask me about my wife, and for this I feel an overwhelming gratitude. The circus is a thing of many parts. It is a cake bake, a display of acrobatics and mime, a sheepdog trial, and a magic show. The sheepdog trial is something of a surprise. Amid the noise and haste, a lanky black Scotsman with a voluminous beard hurtles up on a quad bike. Two border collies, dappled, eager, and curious, sit on the platform at the back. In a wheeled chicken wire box are several Indian runner ducks. The collies are called something like Menwer and Hibwer, and the man himself, another K, of course, speaks for the moment only in sharp, irritated growls and yaps. The Indian runner ducks have no names, or at least no names they share with us, and are here to represent sheep. 
they have many of the characteristics of sheep without actually being sheep. They are fabulously stupid.